Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon and English study group where we study the words of the Buddha using this book series titled The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden. We're in volume 11, which is titled The Realms of Existence. Today we're going to be studying chapters 51 through chapters 60. And the way that we conduct our class is we first start with a meditation just to kind of clear the mind and prepare it for learning. This will help you to be able to retain the teachings for a longer period of time. We just do a little short meditation, kind of like a top up, where if you have a really well established meditation practice, you're probably meditating two or three times a day for 30 minutes or longer each session. But this is just a little top up meditation that we can do together. Then afterwards, we'll have a student actually read each individual chapter. You can volunteer if you're in Zoom. You can volunteer by submitting that to Miranda, and she'll be able to help you to select some chapters to read. After a student reads, I'll share teachings on that chapter and then open up to any questions that you might have. If you're joining us for the first time, I'd like to welcome you because we actually will be showing these chapters on the screen. So whether you've read these chapters beforehand, maybe if you've been attending regularly, I'd like to welcome you as well, that you might have read ahead of time, which some students do, you can download these books for free. But if you're joining us for the first time, we're actually going to be displaying these chapters on the screen. So we'll be reading them together as a class. And then in the future, if you go to buddhadailywisdom.com, from there you can download the books and read prior to class. And then you might actually have questions. Because in the Book, you'll see the words of the Buddha, you'll see a reference back to the original source text, and then you'll see descriptions and explanations and thoughts from me to help you understand further what it is the Buddha was actually teaching. He was teaching and speaking very clear, very concise, very precise, but it helps to have a teacher kind of share some thoughts with you for your reflection and application of these teachings into your life practice. So I'd like to welcome everyone and invite you to join us for meditation. If you'd like to take your meditation position, and then this will just help you to relax the lower body, to relax the hands and arms in the lap, and then keep the upper body nice and erect. This keeps the mind attentive and alert during the meditation. Next, just close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. I'm going to do some chanting just to ease us into meditation. You're welcome to join along in these chants if you know them. And then afterwards, I'll come back with some more light guidance. Arahang 
Hotang mahakavanhang apivate ami. Savakato mahakavata tammo. Damang namasami. Supatipano makawato sa wakasangko sanghang namami napmorasabakawato. Arato sama saputasa napmor sabakwato arato sama saputasa napmor sabakwato arato sama saputasa iti piso makwa Arahang samasamoto Vichacharanang samono Sakatoro kawito Anutero purisa Dhamma sati sata tawa manusanang Puto bhagavati Okay, you should be breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Taking nice gradual breaths, experiencing the full inhale and exhale. Once you have the breath established, fixate the mind on the breath, the sound of the breath, or the sensation of air moving into the nose over the skin. The breath is the present moment. Fixate the mind on the breath, the present moment. Breathing in. In, out. With the mind fixated on the breath, whenever you observe that the mind moves off the breath, Cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. No need to judge the thought, label the thought, or analyze it in any way. 
just wherever you observe that the mind is off the breath, cut that thought off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in and out.
โหตังมหาเกวันหังอภิวาเตมีสวาคาโตมหาเกวตาตัมโมดามังนามาสามสุปฏิปันโอมหาเกวโตสาวกสังโฆสังขังนามามินับมรหสาภาเกวโตอาราตัสมมาสัพพุตสานับมรหสาภาคาวโตอาราตัสมมาสัพพุตสานับมรหสาภาคาวโตอาราตัสมมาสัพพุตสาอิติปิสุมหาเกวาอาราหังสมมาสัมโตวิจจารณังสัมโนสขาตโรกาวิตุอนุเตโรภูริสัดามาสติสัตตาวามนุสนังพุตโตภาควัติโอเค if you guys would like to slowly make your way out of meditation I'd like to welcome anyone who's joined us since we started our meditation we're going to start with chapter 51 And I'm just going to turn the class over to all of you guys, and specifically the moderators, to be able to guide us through the class today, where we can have a student read each chapter. I'll share teachings on that chapter, and then open up to any questions that you guys might have related to the chapter. So I'll just turn things over to all of you. Yes, sir. Thank you. Um, can we go to Rick to read chapter 51, please? Chapter 51. Consciousness, conditions, name, and form. I have said, consciousness, conditions, name, and form, and this is the way that should it should that should be understood, Ananda. If consciousness were not to come into the mother's womb, would name and form develop there? No, venerable sir. Or, if consciousness, having entered the mother's womb, were to be deflected, would name and form come to birth in this life? No, venerable sir. And if the consciousness of such a tender young being, boy or girl, were thus cut off, 
would name and form grow, develop, and mature? No venerable sir. Therefore, Ananda, just this namely consciousness is the root, the cause, the origin, the condition of name and form. I have said name and form conditions consciousness, and this is the way that should it should, that should be understood, Ananda. If consciousness did not find a resting place in name and form, would there subsequently be an arising and coming to be a birth, aging, death, and discontentedness? No, venerable sir. Therefore, Ananda, just this, namely, name and form is the root, the cause, the origin, the condition of consciousness. Thus far then, Ananda, we can trace birth and decay, death and falling into other states and being reborn. <clears throat> Thus far extends the way of designation. Thus far extends the way of concepts. Thus far is the sphere of understanding. Thus far, the round goes as far as can be discerned in this life, namely to name and form together with consciousness. All right. Thank you, Rick. So let's first discuss what is name and form. And we can also discuss what is consciousness. These are two aspects of dependent origination that the Buddha shares. And I shared this back in volume five chapter 14 and there were other places in this program where we discussed dependent origination in detail essentially what dependent origination is is the buddha is giving 12 steps that a being goes through as it reaches to experiencing discontentedness it starts with ignorance or unknowing of true reality and ends with discontentedness and he's explaining how beings continue in the cycle of rebirth being reborn over and over and over again and experiencing discontentedness what consciousness is is consciousness is the mind in name and form is essentially the physical body there's specific attributes that the buddha shares or certain elements that he shares which makes up name and form but for our purposes today if you can just think about name and form as the physical body this would be a good way to think about it so what he's explaining in this teaching is that if consciousness or mind doesn't come into a physical body in the mother's womb would there be birth and therefore if there's not birth then there won't be death and if there's not birth, there won't be discontentedness either. So the way that Buddha is explaining this is that consciousness or the mind comes into the mother's womb at the time of conception. And if you remember back to a previous chapter that we studied, the Buddha talked about three things that come together in order to create a living being. He talks about the union of the mother and father, that the mother needs to be in season, and there needs to be a consciousness. The mother being in season is an egg coming out of the ovaries, and that consciousness is what the Buddha is explaining here. So if there's a mother and father that come together, if the mother has an egg that's being released, and there's a consciousness that's ready for rebirth, then now there's an actual living being in the womb of the mother. And now here, he's explaining how it's consciousness coming into the physical body that creates this living being, and thus when there's birth, there's going to be sickness, aging, and death. There's going to be discontentedness. So by essentially extinguishing craving, anger, and ignorance, which he talks about in other parts of his teachings, which are the pollutions of mind, by extinguishing those, then the mind is enlightened. There's peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy that you experience for the rest of this life. And then there's no further conditions that are created in order to create this 
new life or there's no basis for this consciousness to continue. As long as there's craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing and strong eagerness in the mind, that's the fuel that allows consciousness to continue. So if we extinguish craving, anger, and ignorance in this life, then there's no conditions in which allows this consciousness to continue and enter into a new physical body or a new name and form. And thus, all discontentedness is eliminated. So you can get to the point in this life where you've eliminated craving, anger, and ignorance, and you'll know that because the mind will no longer experience any discontent feelings. And then at death, there will no longer be any rebirth because there's no conditions that are allowing the consciousness to continue. You can also attain enlightenment at death. That wouldn't be ideal. You shouldn't bank on that. You shouldn't count on that. But it is possible for beings to attain enlightenment at death and not experience rebirth as well. But the idea would be that if you apply dedication, diligence, and effort in this life, you can actually get to enlightenment in this life and enjoy that enlightened mental state for the rest of this life. Rather than being discontent all the way until death and then getting enlightenment, which is probably the second best thing, but you can't count on that, but at least there isn't any rebirth. It would be much wiser to apply the effort and dedication in life so that once the mind's enlightened, you get to enjoy the benefits of that throughout the rest of this life. So that's what the Buddha is explaining here. What questions do you guys have on this? The way that you can ask questions is put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can electronically raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. It does not appear there are any questions at this time, sir. All right, let's move to chapter 52. Yes, sir. Let's go to Donnie for chapter 52, sir. You end and disengagement concerning femininity and masculinity. Monks, I will teach you a discourse on union and disengagement. Listen. And what is that discourse on union and disengagement? A woman, monks, attends internally to a feminine faculty a feminine behavior, a feminine appearance, a feminine expect, a feminine desire, a feminine voice, a feminine decoration. She becomes excited by these and takes delight in them. Excited by them, taking delight in them, she attends externally to a man's masculine facility, behavior, appearance, expect, desire, voice, decoration. She becomes excited by these and takes delight in them. Excited by them, taking delight in them, she desires union externally, and she also desires the pleasure and joy that arise on account of such union. Beings who are delighted with their femininity enter upon union with men. It is in this way that a man or woman does not transcend her femininity. A man, monks, attends internally to his masculine faculty, behavior, appearance, expect, desire, voice, decoration. He becomes excited by these and takes delight in them. Excited by them, taking delight in them, he extends ex externally to woman's feminine faculty, behavior, appearance, expect, desire, voice, and decoration. He becomes excited by these and takes delight in them. Excited by them, taking delight in them, he desires union externally, and he also desires the pleasure and joy that arise on account of such union. Beings who are delighted with their masculinity enter upon union with women. 
It is in this way that a man does not transcend his masculinity. This is how union comes about. And how does this engagement come about? A woman, monks, does not attempt internally to her feminine faculty, behavior, appearance, aspect, desire, voice, and decoration. She does not become excited by these or take delight in them. Not excited by them, not taking delight in them, she does not attempt externally to a man's masculine faculty, behavior, appearance, expect, desire, voice, decoration. She does not become excited by these or take delight in them, nor excited by them, not taking delight in them. She does not desire union externally, nor does she desire the pleasure and joy that arise or come such union. Beings who are not delighted with their femininity become and disengage from men. It is in this way that a woman transcends her femininity. A monk, a man monks, does not attend internally to his masculine faculty, behavior, appearance, expect, desire, voice, decoration. He does not become excited by these or take, in light, take delight in them. Not, not excited by them, not taking delight in them, he does not attend externally to a woman's feminine faculty, behavior, appearance, aspect, desire, voice, decoration. He does not become excited by these or take delight in them, not excited by them, not taking delight in them. He does not desire union externally, nor does he desire the pleasure and joy that arise on account of such union. Beings who are not delighted with their masculinity become disengaged from women. It is in this way that a man transcends his masculinity. This is how disengagement comes about. This monks is teaching this course on union and disengagement. All right. Thank you, Donnie. Essentially what the Buddha is explaining here is how a woman and a man come together and decide to have sexual intercourse. That's the first part. And then the second part is he's talking about people who aren't interested in that. And we might say that these people are either interested in remaining single or perhaps they prefer same gender relationships. They're not interested in the opposite gender. That's what the Buddha is describing here, because we're in this kind of series of describing how a human being comes to be, because this book is about the cycle of rebirth and we're in this section related to human beings and he's describing how human beings come together between this union of a man and a woman and why that occurs that's the first part and then the second part where he talks about disengagement this is where he's describing that not every woman is going to be interested in having intercourse with a man and not every man is going to have interest in having intercourse with a female this is according to the universal truth of impermanence. We understand that that's the case. And if we understand the cycle of rebirth, that we've all been countless beings in the past, and in those countless existences, we've been different genders at different times, it makes complete sense that a being who ends up in a female body in terms of sexual organs being female, that the mind doesn't necessarily identify with being a female necessarily. And likewise, a being who is in a body that has male sexual organs doesn't necessarily mean that the mind identifies with being a male and would not all beings are going to be interested in having intercourse with the opposite gender and this is all completely normal here so the buddha is not 
sharing any teachings of what we should or shouldn't do. He's just making an observation about the world that not everybody is going to be interested in being in relationships with opposite genders. And I think this is very important to understand as it relates to the cycle of rebirth in terms of understanding that if somebody has a interest to remain single, then wonderful. If someone has interest in being in an opposite gender relationship, wonderful. If somebody has interest in being in a same gender relationship, wonderful. These things are all normal as we understand the cycle of rebirth and as we understand the universal truth of impermanence. And then when you look at the teaching on sexual misconduct that the Buddha has in the five precepts, here this is evidence that the Buddha was aware of people who don't identify with necessarily being female or male or being interested in having sex with the opposite gender or so forth. But when he describes the precept of sexual misconduct, he never mentions that it's unwholesome, for example, to have sexual intercourse or relationship with someone of the same gender. And the reason why is because these teachings are all based on the natural law of gamma. And these natural laws of existence is if you cause harm to others, harm is going to come to you. So if two loving, consenting females are in a relationship together, or two loving, consenting males are in a relationship together, they're not causing anybody any harm in that relationship. They're in that relationship together. It doesn't cause an opposite gender relationship couple harm by two females choosing to love each other or two males choosing to love each other and be in an intimate relationship with each other. The Buddha understood this 2,500 years ago. That's how awake this Buddha was, that he was so awake that 2,500 years ago, he understood that there's no problems with same gender relationships. Today, we have a lot of people in the world that don't yet understand that, but yet the Buddha understood that 2,500 years ago. So here we're just getting information about what exists during the lifetime of the Buddha and how beings come about into this human realm is by the union of a male and a female choosing to have intercourse with each other. And nowadays we have such modern technology is that there can actually be a human birth without intercourse even. This is possible as well. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Uh, there are no questions at this time, sir. All right, so we'll move to the next chapter, which is chapter 53. Yes, sir. Let's go to Jam for chapter 53, please. Your mute's on, Jan. <laughs> Thank you for that, teacher, David. <laughs> Why human beings are seen to be unwholesome and wholesome. Then the Brahmin student, Suba, Torea's son, went to the perfectly enlightened one and exchanged greetings with him. When this courteous and friendly talk was finished, he sat down at one side and asked the perfectly enlightened one, Master Gautama, what is the cause and condition why human beings are seen to be unwholesome and wholesome? For people are seen to be short-lived and long-lived, sickly and healthy, ugly and beautiful, uninfluential and influential, poor and wealthy, low-born and high-born, unwise and wise. What is the cause and condition, Master Gautama, why human beings are seen to be unwholesome and wholesome? Student, beings are owners of their actions, heirs of their actions. They originate from their actions, are bound to their actions, 
have their actions as their refuge. It is action that distinguishes beings as unwholesome and wholesome. I do not understand in detail the meaning of Master Gautama's statement, which he spoke in brief without expounding meaning in detail. It would be good if Master Gautama would teach me the teachings so that I might understand in detail the meaning of Master Gautama's statement. Then student, listen and attend closely to what I shall say. Yes, sir, the Brahmin student Subha replied. The perfectly enlightened one said this. Here student, some man or woman kills living beings and is murderous, bloody handed, given to blows and violence, merciless to living beings. Because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a state without basic necessities in an unhappy destination, in perdition, even in hell. But if on the dissolution of the body after death, he does not appear in a state without basic necessities in an unhappy destination, in perdition, in hell, but instead comes back to the human state, then whenever he is reborn, he is short-lived. This is the way, student, that leads to short life. Namely, one kills living being and is murderous, bloody-handed, given to blows and violence, merciless to living beings. But here, student, some man or woman, abandoning the killing of living beings, abstains from killing living beings. With rod and weapons laid aside, gentle and kindly, he resides compassionate to all living beings. Because of performing and undertaking such action, on the dissolution of the body, after death, he reappears in a happy destination, even in the heavenly world. But if on the dissolution of the body after death, he does not reappear in a happy destination in the heavenly world, but instead comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is long-lived. This is the way, student, that leads to long life, namely abandoning the killing of living beings. One abstains from killing living beings. With rod and weapon laid aside, gentle and kindly, one resides compassionate to all living beings. Here, student, some man or woman is given to injuring beings with the hand, with a clod, with a stick, or with a knife. Because of performing and undertaking such action, on the dissolution of the body, after death, he reappears in a state without basic necessities, in an unhappy destination, in perdition, even in health. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is sickly. In this way, student, that leads to sickliness. Namely, one is given to injuring beings with the hand, with a clod, with a stick, or with a knife. But here, student, some man or woman is not given to injuring beings with the hand, with a clod, with a stick, or with a knife. Because of performing and undertaking such action, on the dissolution of the body, after death, he reappears in a happy destination, in the heavenly world, but if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is healthy. This is the way, student, that leads to health. Namely, one is not given to injuring beings with a hand, with a clod, with a stick, or with a knife. For student, some man or woman is of an angry and irritable character. Even when criticized a little, he is offended, becomes angry, hostile, and resentful. 
and displays anger, hate, and bitterness. Because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a state without basic necessities, in an unhappy destination, in perdition, even in hell. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is ugly. This is the way, student, that leads to ugliness. Namely, one is of an angry and irritable character. Even when criticized a little, he is offended, becomes angry, hostile, and resentful, and displays anger, hate, and bitterness. But here, student, some man or woman is not of an angry and irritable character. Even when criticized a little, he is not offended, does not become angry, hostile, and resentful, and does not display anger, hate, and bitterness. Because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination in the heavenly world. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is beautiful. This is the way, student, that leads to being beautiful. Namely, one is not of an angry and irritable character. Even when criticized a little, he is not offended, does not become angry, hostile, and resentful, and does not display anger, hate, and bitterness. Here, student, some man or woman is jealous. One who is selfish, resentful, and feels bitter about the gains, honor, respect, appreciation, salutations, and veneration achieved, received by others. Because of performing and undertaking such action, on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a state without basic necessities, in an unhappy destination, in perdition, even in hell. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then whenever he is reborn, he is uninfluential. This is the way, student, that leads to being uninfluential. Namely, one is jealous, resentful, and feels bitter towards the gains, honor, respect, appreciation, salutations, and veneration received by others. But here, student, some man or woman is not jealous, is one who is not selfish, resentful, and feels bitter about the gains, honor, respect, appreciation, salutations, and veneration received by others. Because of performing and undertaking such an action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination in the heavenly world. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is influential. This is the way, student, that leads to being influential. Namely, one is not jealous, resentful, and feels bitter toward the gains, honor, respect, appreciation, salutation, and veneration received by others. Here, student, some man or woman does not give food, drink, clothing, carriages, garlands, scents, ointments, beds, dwelling, and lamps to ascetics or Brahmins. Because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a state without basic necessities, in perdition, even in hell. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is poor. This is the way a student that leads to poverty. Namely, one does not give food, drink, clothing, carriages, garlands, scents, ointments, beds, dwelling, and lamps to ascetics or Brahmins. But here, student, some man or woman gives food, drink, clothing, carriages, garlands, scents, ointments, beds, 
dwelling and lamps to ascetics or Brahmins because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination in the heavenly world. But instead, if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is wealthy. This is the way student that leads to wealth. Namely, one gives food, drink, clothing, carriages, garlands, scents, ointments, beds, dwelling, and lamps to ascetics or Brahmins. Here, student, some man or woman is stubborn and arrogant. He does not pay homage, respect to one who should receive homage, respect, does not rise up for one in whose presence he should rise up, does not offer a seat to one who deserves a seat, does not make way for one for whom he should make way, and does not honor, respect, appreciate, and venerate one who should be honored, respected, appreciated, and venerated. Because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a state without basic necessities, in perdition, even in hell. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then whenever he is reborn, he is lowborn. This is the way student that leads to low birth, Namely, one is stubborn and arrogant. He does not pay homage, respect to one who should receive homage, respect. Does not rise up for one in whose presence he should rise up. Does not offer a seat to one who deserves a seat. Does not make way for one for whom he should make way. And does not honor, respect, appreciate, and venerate one who should be honored, respected, appreciated, and venerated. But here, student, some man or woman is not stubborn and arrogant. He pays homage, respect to one who should receive homage, respect, rises up for one in whose presence he should rise up, offers a seat to one who deserves a seat, makes way for one for whom he should make way, and honors, respects, appreciates, and venerates one who should be honored, respected, appreciated, and venerated. Because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination in the heavenly world. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is high born. This is the way student that leads to high birth. Namely, one is not stubborn and arrogant. He pays homage, respect to one who should receive homage, respect, rises up for one in whose presence he should rise up, offers a seat to one who deserves a seat, makes way for one for whom he should make way, and honors, respects, appreciates, and venerates one who should be honored, respected, appreciated, and venerated. Here, student, some man or woman does not visit an ascetic or a Brahmin and ask, Venerable sir, what is wholesome? What is unwholesome? What is blamable? What is blameless? What should be cultivated? What should not be cultivated? What kind of action will lead to my harm and discontentedness for a long time? What kind of action will lead to my welfare and peacefulness for a long time? Because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a state without basic necessities, in perdition, even in hell. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is unwise. This is the way student that leads to being unwise, namely when he does not visit an ascetic or Brahmin and asks us questions. But here student, 
some man or woman visits an ascetic or a Brahmin and asks, Venerable Sir, what is wholesome? What kind of action will lead to my welfare and peacefulness for a long time? Because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination in the heavenly world. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is wise. In this way, student, this is the way, student, that leads to wisdom, namely one visits an ascetic or Brahmin and asks such questions. Thus, student, the way that leads to short life makes people short-lived. The way that leads to long life makes people long-lived. The way that leads to sickliness makes people sickly. The way that leads to health makes people healthy. The way that leads to ugliness makes people ugly. The way that leads to being beautiful makes people beautiful. The way that leads to being uninfluential makes people uninfluential. The way that leads to being influential makes people influential. The way that leads to po poverty makes people poor. The way that leads to wealth makes people wealthy. The way that leads to low birth makes people low born. The way that leads to high birth makes people high born. The way that leads to unwise makes people unwise. The way that leads to wisdom makes people wise. Beings are owners of their actions. Students heirs of their actions. They originate from their actions, are bound to their actions, have their actions as their refuge. It is action that distinguishes beings as unwholesome and wholesome. When this was said, the Brahmin student Subha, Tadeya's son, said to the perfectly enlightened one, Magnificent Master Gautama, magnificent Master Gautama. Master Gautama has made the teachings clear in many ways, as though he were turning upright what had been overturned, revealing what was hidden, showing the way to one who was lost, or holding up a lamp in the dark for those with eyesight to see forms. I go to Master Gautama for refuge and to the teachings and to the community of monks. Let Master Gautama remember me as a household practitioner who has gone to him for refuge, for life. All right. Thank you, Jan. So the way that I describe the cycle of rebirth for people who are just getting started is I explain that it's craving, desire, attachment. That is the cause to determine whether there is rebirth or not. But then it's our gamma or the results of our decisions, which determines the condition of that rebirth in terms of what family, what type of health, our appearance and all kinds of other factors based on what we experience in that new existence. So that's our gamma or the results of our decisions. Here, the Buddha is explaining that. He's helping you to understand after this student makes asked this question is he says, Beings are the owners of their actions, heirs of their actions. They originate from their actions, are bound to their actions, have their actions as their refuge or protection. It is action that distinguishes beings as unwholesome or wholesome. So it's our decisions about our actions. And there's bodily actions, there's verbal actions, and there's mental actions. Another way to think about this is the way that the Buddha presents it in the Eightfold Path is right intention, right speech, and right action. So our right intentions are our mental actions. Our right speech is our verbal actions. And our 
right action is our bodily actions. And he's providing for you in the Eightfold Path what are the wholesome intentions, speech, and actions, helping you to improve your bodily, verbal, and mental conduct. And then when we're not doing those things, our conduct is unwholesome. And we are going to experience the results of our decisions. If we are unwise and we make unwise decisions about our bodily, verbal, and mental conduct, then we're going to experience some of the things that he's explaining here, depending on how we function in the world. But if we gain wisdom and we understand how to practice in wholesome ways through right intention, right speech, and right action, then we're going to experience beneficial outcomes. And he's explaining that in short here at the very beginning, but then his student asked him, okay, can you expound on this? Can you really explain it? And as long as it took Jan to read that, which is quite extensive piece of discourse, if you can imagine the Buddha actually speaking this from memory, piece by piece, helping us to understand what is unwholesome and what is wholesome, it's all based on our actions. And our actions are determined by our own decisions. It is our life, our decisions, our results, or our gamma. Other beings can't produce gamma or results for us. It's our decisions that lead to some outcome or some results. And that's what the Buddha is explaining here. This is a very rare piece of discourse where the Buddha is equating his teachings to certain wholesome or unwholesome outcomes. And as I have shared multiple times, the Buddha never tries to fear, guilt, or shame people into learning and practicing his teachings. But when he's asked this question and he gives just a brief answer, the student asks for more. So he provides more and helps the student understand how doing things like killing and being arrogant and being selfish and stingy having hateful thoughts and angry thoughts, what these things lead to. And you can see this if you are aware of things in your life or other people's life. You can see these kind of things that are occurring. That when we kill, for example, when we're murderous and we're killing living beings, what the Buddha is saying is, okay, then we're short-lived. Whereas if we don't harm other beings and we don't kill, then we ha can have this long life. So when you're struggling with a situation where you see maybe a child has died, you know, maybe at age eight or 12 or 14 or something like this, then you can understand it through the natural law of gamma, that this being most likely had some situations in the past and past lives where they were maybe killing and being murderous, and then in their rebirth, they had a short life. So these are the things that occur. It's not punishment. It's not rewards. It's just the natural laws of existence taking course, and we experience the results of our decisions. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? It does not appear there are any questions at this time, sir. All right. So let's move to the next chapter, which is chapter 54. Yes, so let's go to Rick to read chapter 54, please. Okay. Duty of a noble-wheeled turning monarch. The perfectly enlightened one spoke about a wheeled turning monarch of long, long ago. This conversation is between the consecrated Katia King, his son, and King Dalhanemi, the father. But what, sir, is the duty of a noble-wheeled turning monarch? It is this, my son, yourself depending on the teachings, honoring it, revering it, cherishing it, 
doing homage or respect to it and venerating it. Having the teachers teachings as your badge and banner, acknowledging the teachings as your master. You should establish guard, security, and protection according to the teachings for your own household, your troops, your noble, your nobles and royal subordinates or vassals. For Brahmins and householders, town and country, folk, ascetics and Brahmins, for beasts and birds. Let no, no crime exist in your kingdom, and to those who are in need, give property. And whatever ascetics and Brahmins in your kingdom have renounced the life of essential desire or obsession, and are devoted to patient mental discipline and gentleness, each one is taming himself, each one calming himself, and each one striving for the end of craving. From time to time you should go to them and consult them as to what is wholesome and what is unwholesome, what is blameworthy and what is blameless, what is to be followed and what is not to be followed, and what action will in the long run lead to harm and sorrow and what to welfare and peacefulness. Having listened to them, you should avoid this evil, unwholesome, and do avoid the evil unwholesome and do what is wholesome that my son is the duty of a noble wheel turning monarch all right thank you rick so here we've got a conversation between a king that is a father and his son who is also a king in this katya community which is known during the lifetime of the buddha as being very prosperous and very well off based on very wise decisions of the people in the community the father is explaining to the son what is a wheel turning monarch in terms of how do they function what a wheel turning monarch is is there somebody who runs their population of people based on the teachings of the buddha so during the lifetime of the buddha it was kings that were running large populations of people so they were called wheel turning monarchs today we still have some kings in the world but you might think of like a president or a prime minister or someone who can potentially be a wheel turning monarch in terms of if they understood the teachings of the Buddha, which are based on the natural laws of existence, if they guided their government, for example, and thus helped create an environment of laws and other things based on the teachings of the Buddha, then the people in that population would live a very wonderful and prosperous life because they would be functioning based on the natural laws of existence. So here the father is explaining to the son, okay, you know, you should think about these teachings in a way of honoring them, revering them, cherishing them, essentially depending on these teachings as being your guiding light and how you make decisions for your kingdom. And that you should go to these aesthetics and Brahmin to understand these teachings more deeply so that then it will give you the wisdom that you need in order to function and make wise decisions about your kingdom. Because a wheel turning monarch is somebody who has great power and ability to influence large populations of people. And if they're making wise decisions based on the natural laws of existence that the Buddha explained, then this population of people are going to be kind of treated in very wonderful ways by this wheel turning monarch. You know, the way that they administer certain rules or conduct or laws in their environment and in their society is going to be based on the natural laws of existence rather than being based on craving anger and ignorance which can pollute the mind because our human laws are imperfect right we can't have these perfect human laws because they're created by human beings and human beings 
minds that are unenlightened are affected by the pollution of craving, anger, and ignorance. So to create laws that are completely fair for everybody is a very difficult thing for human beings to do. And then to actually administer those laws in a way that is completely fair for everyone is a very challenging thing to do because of the craving, anger, and ignorance in each human being's mind who is involved in the creation and enforcement of these human societal laws. But the natural laws of existence, if we understand those and we function through those without craving anger and ignorance, now we can get to a point where we're functioning in a way that is harmless and very peaceful and harmonious for all beings. So if a wheel-turning monarch is able to do this, and even if this monarch can ultimately get to enlightenment, then the way that they're going to function and the way that they're going to run their society is going to be very improved above and beyond somebody who maybe is stuck in craving anger and ignorance. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? Yes, sir. Um, I had a question. Why do we not see many wheel-turning monarchs or leaders like this today? Is this due to the teachings not being widely shared throughout the world, or is this just due to the natural law of impermanence that we can't always have wheel-turning monarchs in power over countries? Yeah, so during the lifetime of the Buddha, of course, when a Buddha exists, the teachings are to come into the world very clear, very concise, very precise. They're going to be very vibrant in the world, particularly in that region where the Buddha existed. The teachings would have been very vibrant during his lifetime. And there would be people that he was teaching who were considered to be of low class, but then he would also be teaching people in upper class and royal families as well. A Buddha can teach people of all levels of society. So wheel-turning monarchs or people who were kings or in royal families would be seeking guidance from the Buddha and potentially some of his students to learn how to become more and more enlightened and train their mind. But then upon his death, the teachings, you know, they continue for a period of time, but then they start declining. And the Buddha actually talks about this during his lifetime about how this occurs, why this occurs, and then what's going to occur afterwards. And we even have a chapter this week that that alludes to some of that. So yes, it's impermanence in terms of the teachings have slowly degraded over time and the teachings aren't as well known in the world as they were during the lifetime of the Buddha. But as these teachings come into the world more and more and people can see the benefits of them, we will eventually get to the point where we do have leaders who understand the value and importance of understanding the natural laws of existence and it's the buddhist teachings that are explaining those natural laws of existence and by them learning them and practicing them and functioning in all parts of society not just politicians and presidents and people that are in positions of power but even a business person even a stay-at-home mom or dad you know a gardener a taxi driver any of us who are performing any role in society that are functioning through the natural laws of existence is just going to provide more and more benefit for themselves and for the community around them because we now function in a way that's harmless. But today, because the teachings aren't as vibrant in the world as they once were during the lifetime of the Buddha, or at least during in that region that he was in, then we don't really see this very much. And then also the other thing that I'll share on this topic is people who are practicing really well, whether it's Buddhist teachings or maybe they've learned these natural laws of existence through some other teachings, they're not going to 
be out in the forefront and looking for fame or fortune or things like this. People who are practicing these teachings well are going to be very humble, very peaceful, very harmonious, and they're just going to go about their day and doing things that they know are beneficial and helpful and wholesome for others, not looking for credit from other people. So they're are probably people in the world that are functioning in this way that we just don't hear about because they're not stepping out into the world and saying, look at me, look at me, look how wholesome I am, look how wonderful I'm running my country. These people tend to just kind of go about their day doing things that are helpful and beneficial without any expectation of anything in return. So we may have some people in the world that are practicing in the way that maybe a will turning monarch might, but we just aren't seeing them step out in the world and take credit or accolades for what they're doing in the world. But when you come across these people and you start observing how they're conducting themselves and how they're maybe running a, a certain society, then you can take note of it and realize like, ah, you know, they're making really wise decisions, whether it's based on the Buddha's teachings or some other teacher who shared these things, the natural laws of existence are the natural laws. And different teachers spoke about these at different times, whether it's the Buddha, Jesus Christ, Prophet Muhammad and others. We've had people that have talked about the natural laws of existence so we can learn these things in multiple ways. But I suspect as more and more people learn these teachings, we'll see more and more people functioning as what we would consider a wheel-turning monarch. Yes, thank you, sir. You're welcome. It does not appear there are any other questions at this time, sir. All right, so we'll go to chapter 55. Yes, sir. Beings bound by action. One is not a Brahmin by birth, nor by birth a non-Brahmin. By action, one is a Brahmin. By action, one is a non-Brahmin. For men are farmers by their acts, and by their acts are craftsmen too. And men are merchants by their acts, and by their acts are servants too. And men are robbers by their acts, and by their acts are soldiers too. And men are chaplains by their acts, and by their acts are rulers too. So that is how the truly wise see action as it really is, see dependent origination, skilled in action and its results. Action makes the world go round. Action makes this generation turn. Living beings are bound by action, like the chariot wheel by the linchpin. All right. Thank you, Miranda. There's a, several things to talk about here. During the lifetime of the Buddha, one of the common beliefs and thoughts were, is based on the family that you're born into, then your life is kind of destined for some certain outcome. If you're born into kind of a poor or poverty-stricken family, then it was thought that, okay, your life was going to have this kind of meager existence. Where if you were born into this noble family or an affluent family or a rich family, you were a wholesome person and you were going to have a certain type of life. And the Buddha was really helping people to see that this is not true, that the results of your life and what you experience in life is a result of your decisions and your actions. So Brahmin, during the lifetime of the Buddha, this was an upper class group of people who were essentially considered the priest. And if you were born into this family, then it was considered that you were wholesome. And the Buddha is saying, you know, it's not by birth that determines whether you're this wholesome person or not. It's your actions that determine whether you're wholesome or not. And it's your actions, just like whether you're a farmer, or a craftsman, a merchant, or a servant, it's your actions that determine this. It's not, 
you know, where you're actually born in the world. So that's the first thing that he's explaining here. He's really honing in on action, just like the previous chapters where he's talking about the natural law of gamma, that it's our choices and decisions, our actions about our bodily conduct, verbal conduct, and mental conduct that determines the results in how we experience things in life. And he says, that is how the truly wise see action as it really is. So if you can see the truth for yourself, that everything we experience is a result of our decision, then you say, okay, then this is true wisdom when you see this. And when you're able to see dependent origination and understanding those 12 steps that are in volume five, chapter 14, and you can understand dependent origination deeply, then you understand what leads to continuous rebirth and what leads to discontentedness. And he talks about skilled in action and its results. Essentially what he's talking about here is if you have deep wisdom about the natural laws of existence, essentially the natural law of gamma, then you understand the actions that lead to certain unwholesome results in the actions that lead to certain wholesome results and being skilled in action, understanding the natural law of gamma, then obviously you're going to make wiser and wiser choices to produce wholesome results because the more skilled in the natural law of gamma you are, understanding the actions that lead to wholesomeness and that lead to unwholesomeness, you're going to make the obvious decisions in order to move your decision making and your conduct towards wholesomeness, both or bodily, verbal, and mental conduct. And he's saying this is what makes the world go round, is actions. That's what creates everything that we experience in the world is based on our decisions. And he's saying living beings are bound by their actions, meaning that we are going to experience the results of our decisions regardless. We can't run and hide from the results of our decisions. So when you see somebody proven not guilty in a court of law that you feel is actually guilty and there's all the evidence in the world that this person is guilty, they can't run and hide from the results of their decisions. If they caused harm, maybe these human laws aren't holding them responsible in that particular instance, but they can't run and hide from the actions of whatever they did. Living beings are bound by our decisions, by our actions. And when you understand the natural law of gamma and what leads to wholesomeness and unwholesomeness, then you're obviously going to make the wise decisions to go towards the wholesome. And he's saying this is like a chariot wheel by a linchpin. What this is, is if you have a an animal or a horse and then you have a cart connecting these two things together is the linchpin in the middle. If you pull that linchpin, then it separates and it doesn't exist. As a cart and a horse, it's two separate things now. It can't pull this, this cart. So your actions are what keeps your life experiencing whatever it's experiencing. That's the linchpin. So when you improve your decisions around your bodily, verbal, and mental conduct, now you're improving the results that you experience in life. So rather than us complaining or being upset about certain things that we experience in life, when we understand that it's our decisions that are leading to some certain result, then we can improve our decision-making. And we need to get wisdom in order to improve our decision-making. And it's the Buddhist teachings that are helping you understand that wisdom 
again, not believing the teachings, but you learn, reflect, and practice them so you can see the truth. And this is what leads to your improved accumulation of wisdom, your improved decision-making, and your improved results in life. And it's your actions that are going to determine what you experience in life. That's what he's explaining here. What questions do you have on this chapter? It does not appear there are any questions at this time, sir. All right, we'll go to chapter 56. Yes, sir. Let's go to Jan to read chapter 56, please. Thank you, Miranda. The path leading to reappearance in accordance with one's objective. Monks, I shall teach you reappearance in accordance with one's objective. Listen and attend closely to what I shall say. Here, monks, a monk professes confidence, virtue, moral conduct, learning, generosity, and wisdom. He thinks, oh, that on the dissolution of body of the body after death, I might re reappear in the company of well-to-do nobles. He fixes his mind on that, determined upon it, develops it. These objectives and this effort of his, thus developed and cultivated, lead to his reappearance there. This monks is the path, the way that leads to reappearance there. Again, a monk possesses confidence, virtue, moral conduct, learning, generosity, and wisdom. He thinks, oh, that on the dissolution of the body after death, I might reappear in the company of well-to-do Brahmins. He fixes his mind on that, determined upon it, develops it. These objectives and this effort of his, thus developed and cultivated, lead to his reappearance there. This monks is the path, the way that leads to reappearance there. Again, a monk possesses confidence, virtue, moral conduct, learning, generosity, and wisdom. He thinks, oh, that on the dissolution of the body after death, I might reappear in the company of well-to-do householders. He fixes his monk mind on that, determined upon it, develops it, these objectives and this effort of his, thus developed and cultivated, lead to his reappearance there. This monks is the path, the way that leads to reappearance there. All right. Thank you, Jan. So here, the Buddha is explaining the qualities that it takes in order to experience an improved rebirth or a certain rebirth that may be of one's objectives. But keep in mind that the goal is not rebirth. That's not what the Buddha is actually teaching here, is our goal is to get to enlightenment. The goal is not to actually experience rebirth at all, but the Buddha is explaining the natural laws of existence of what leads to one thing to another. So if we experience enlightenment where there's elimination of craving, anger, and ignorance in this life, then your mind will be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy for the rest of this life, and there will no longer be any rebirth. The Buddha makes it very clear throughout his teachings that's the ultimate goal. But what the Buddha is also explaining at different points in his teachings is that if you fall short of that for any reason, there's going to be rebirth. But by you learning and practicing these teachings, it will lead to an improved rebirth. So here he's talking about certain qualities of mind to cultivate that leads to a particular rebirth. And he's saying confidence. And whenever he talks about confidence, he's talking about confidence in the Buddha, the teachings, and the community. Because 
that is what's going to ultimately help you get to enlightenment. And what helps you get to enlightenment also will help you get to an improved rebirth if you fall short of enlightenment. So whenever he talks about confidence, this is confidence in that he is in fact enlightened and he is in fact a Buddha, that his teachings are very beneficial and lead to enlightenment. And the community of practitioners who are practicing his teachings well, having confidence in them that they can support you in your journey to enlightenment. And then he talks about this virtue or this virtuous moral conduct. He explains this in the Eightfold Path is right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And then in other parts of his teachings, he expounds upon that. And it kind of plugs into the Eightfold Path to further help you understand this wholesome moral conduct or this virtue. And then having this interest to learn that's very, very important in our life. Not only learning about the teachings of the Buddha, but learning in general. We need to be learning multiple things in order to have a successful and beneficial life. That yes, there needs to be a certain amount of dedication to learning the teachings of the Buddha to awaken to the natural laws of existence, but we also need to learn to read and write and function in careers and professions, learning how to run our household and things like that. So there's Definitely a quality of mind of being interested to learn. And then practicing generosity. This is so, so, so important because generosity is what leads to the elimination of selfishness. It also leads to the elimination of craving, desire, attachment, the cause of discontentedness. Generosity is the willingness and interest to take action, to freely give and share without any expectation of anything in return. Sometimes we only kind of give things when we have an expectation of something in return. If I pay $10, I should get $10 worth of value back. Or if I pay you know, $50, I should get $50 worth of something in return. This isn't generosity. This is I pay something, I'm expecting something of equal or higher value in return. What generosity is, is being willing to give and share without any expectation of anything in return, which helps to train the mind to let go and no longer hold on to things selfishly. So this eliminates craving, desire, attachment, and also helps to eliminate selfishness and holding on to things tightly. And then possessing wisdom. The way that we acquire wisdom is through learning, reflecting, and practicing the Buddhist teachings, which helps us to unravel this whole problem of the cycle of rebirth, that we understand craving is what leads to the discontentedness, it leads to rebirth, that we understand anger and all of that, we understand ignorance, the unknowing of true reality, and the more we gain wisdom on these natural laws of existence, we can then take action to fix the difficulties and problems that we experience in the unenlightened state. Without this wisdom, beings will just continue to roam and wander in the cycle of rebirth, continuing to experience problem after problem after problem. Oftentimes when we experience problems, we run away from those, and then we just are ensuring that that struggle and difficulty continues. But what I encourage and what the Buddha encouraged is to not shrink back from the struggle, is actually when you're struggling and having difficulties, is turn around and walk towards the struggle. So then you can gain wisdom to ensure that you're making wise decisions so that that struggle doesn't occur in the future. If you run away from the challenges that you face, then you're never giving the mind the opportunity to cultivate wisdom and then overcome whatever obstacles or challenges that you're having. By walking towards the difficulty or the struggle and cultivating wisdom, you can then make wise decisions to ensure that it doesn't occur. 
So here the Buddha is explaining these qualities of confidence, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom. If you're cultivating those regularly and you are happening to be reborn and you have this goal and this objective to be reborn in a certain group of individuals, then this is more likely to occur. Of course, he's not guiding you to aspire for that. He's guiding you to get to enlightenment, which all of these same qualities are needed in order to get to enlightenment. But if you fall short of that, then you can have an improved rebirth. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Yes, sir. Jan has her hand raised. Let's go to her for her question, sir. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you, Teacher David. Um, Teacher David, I want to check my understanding with uh, an example. <laughs> in Boston, um, driving in traffic, uh, I've because there's often a tendency to um, think, uh, don't let anybody cut me off. <laughs> I've been deliberately trying to wave people into traffic and to practice generosity by being calm and, you know, letting people go ahead. Um, so recently this was happening and the driver behind the car was very upset at seeing people go ahead and drove the, their car into my car, being very angry. <laughs> so my understanding is that I shouldn't let that affect me. I should just understand that the driver behind me is upset and it's not that I cause their discontentedness. They are causing their own discontentedness. I should continue to practice this generosity and it may not benefit me in the moment, but it will if I'm reborn or at some point in the future. Would that be a correct way to do this? All of that is 100% accurate. I, what I would include is that that generosity is helping you right now in the present moment as well because it's training the mind to give and share. There's also loving kindness and compassion, I'm sure, that is arising in that situation based on what you're describing. So it is helping you now in the present moment. This anger and hostility that the person behind you had which hit into the car that's based on their craving anger and ignorance and it's just a result of their decisions but you shouldn't allow that to affect your interest and willingness and practice of generosity you continue to to practice generosity because it is helping you in this life but it's also if there is going to be rebirth it will help you in a future life as well so this is what transforms the mind helping the mind to now not you know be so selfish and think that you know mine 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 you know get out of my way i'm driving through here don't let anybody cut in or get in by you being generous and like yeah you can go let's share the road you know let's share it it's not my road we can share it together this is how when the buddha talks about stream enters and once returners non-returners and otter hunts functioning in a community of people, then as we have these acts of kindness around us, then more and more people are more likely to do that. So let's just say like all of Boston, every single person is unenlightened. And let's just say that Jan gets to enlightenment and on her way, she's performing this generosity in different situations. Now, slowly but surely, people start to you know, model that conduct because when you let that car in, they appreciated that. And then maybe in the future, they're more likely to let somebody else in as well. And slowly but surely, 
what ends up happening is this slow transformation in the world. Not that that's what Jan's goal necessarily is. Jan's goal is to focus on Jan and Jan's improvement in her life and practicing generosity is good for your mind and your practice, but I'm sharing this other part of it, that there's these benefits, this ripple effect that happens in a community that when more and more awakened individuals are practicing, it can spread. But the, obviously the person who was behind you wasn't in that place on that particular day, but they're now going to experience the results of their decision. I'm sure they're going to be responsible for whatever damage they caused to your car. And now they're getting the results of their decisions your experience and the results of your decisions in that you're practicing generosity and your mind is now more liberated as a result of doing that on a continuous ongoing basis. Thank you, teacher David. You're welcome. On uh, Facebook, sir, Amina asks, when we witness a lack of generosity in children that are not our own, what, if any, is our responsibility in those instances? We don't have a responsibility in that situation. There's things that you can do to help others, but you need to be very selective and very skillful in the way that you do this. That's not your responsibility. That's not what you're aiming for. But as you become more awake and you understand these teachings, there's little things that you can do in order to kind of help beings along, so to speak. So we can talk about this at different times. I mean, I know you have a personal guidance session coming up that we could maybe talk about that and add it to the list of things that we might be planning to talk about. But you shouldn't see this as your responsibility, but more of something that you can do out of compassion, right? Out of this concern for the misfortune of others. But if you take it on as a responsibility, then it can potentially become a craving, desire, attachment, and it's best to not think of it that way, but just more about how an enlightened and awakened being is gonna function when they see people struggling and beings are struggling, there might be things that we choose to do in order to help them along. But we realize that you, know, you can't totally help somebody get to enlightenment just through what you choose to do. Others need to be able to choose to do that. But there are some skillful things that we can do to help others that we see struggling. And we can talk about some of those when we have our upcoming personal discussion, if you like. Thank you, sir. Uh, it does not appear there are any other questions at this time, sir. All right. So let's go to the next chapter, which is chapter 57. Yes, sir. Um, Rick, if you could read the first half of chapter 57, please, sir. Sure. 57, a knowledge of beginnings. There comes a time, Vesetta, Vesetta, when sooner or later, after a long period, this world contracts. At a time of contraction, beings are mostly born in the heavenly realm, Abhasara Brahma world. And there they dwell, mind made, feeding on excitement, self-luminous, moving through the air, glorious, and they stay like that for a very long time. <clears throat> but sooner or later, after a very long period, this world begins to expand again. At a time of expansion, the beings from the heavenly realm, Abhasara Brahma world, having passed away from there, are mostly reborn in this world. Here they dwell mind-made, feeding on excitement, self-luminous, moving through the air, glorious, and they stay like that for a very long time. At that period, Vasetta, 
there was just one mass of water and all was darkness blinding darkness neither moon nor sun appeared no constellations or stars appeared night and day were not distinguished nor months and fortnights no years or seasons and no male and female beings being reckoned just as beings the sooner and sooner or later after a very long period of time savory earth spread itself over the waters where those beings were it looked like just like the skin that forms itself over hot milk as it cools it was endowed with color smell and taste it was the color of the fine ghee or butter and it was very sweet like pure wild honey then some being of a greedy nature said i say what can this be and tasted the savory earth on its fingers in so doing it became taken with the flavor and craving arose in it then other beings taking their cue from that one also tasted the stuff with their fingers they too were taken with the flavor and craving arose in them so they set to so they set to with their hands breaking off pieces of the stuff in order to eat it and the result of this was that their self-luminance disappeared and as a result of the disappearance of their self-luminance the moon and the sun appeared night and day were distinguished months and fortnights appeared and the year and its seasons to that extent to that extent the world re-evolved and those beings continued for a very long time feasting on this savory earth feeding on it and being nourished by it and as they did so, their bodies became coarser, and a difference in looks developed among them. Some beings became good-looking, others ugly. And the good-looking ones despised the others, saying, we are better-looking than they are. And because they became arrogant and conceited about their looks, the savory earth disappeared. At this, they came together and grieved, crying, oh, that flavor. Oh, that flavor. And so nowadays, when people say, oh, that flavor, when they get something nice, they're repeating an ancient saying without realizing it. And then when the savory earth had disappeared, a fungus cropped up in the matter of a mushroom. It was a, of a good odor, smell, and taste. It was the color of fine ghee or butter. And it was very sweet, like pure wild honey. And those beings set to and ate fungus. And this lasted for a very long time. And as they continued to feed on the fungus, so their bodies became coarser still. And the difference in their looks increased still more. And the good-looking ones despised the others. And because they became arrogant and conceited about their looks, the sweet fungus disappeared. Next, creepers appeared, shooting up like bamboo. And they too were very sweet, like pure wild honey. And those beings set to and fed on the, those creepers. And as they did so, their bodies became even coarser, and the difference in their looks increased still more. And they became still more arrogant, and so the creepers disappeared too. At this they came together and grieved, crying, Oh, our creepers gone, what have we lost? And so now today, when people, when being asked why they are upset, say, Oh, what have we lost? They are repeating an ancient saying without realizing it. And then, after the creepers had disappeared, rice appeared in open spaces, free from powder and from husks, fragrant and clean grained. And what they had taken in the evening for supper had grown again and was ripe in the morning. And what they had taken in the morning for breakfast was ripe again by evening, 
with no sign of reaping. And these beings set to and fed on this rice, and this lasted for a very long time. And as they did so, their bodies became coarser still, and the difference in their looks became even greater. And the females developed female sex organs, and the males developed male organs. And the women became excessively preoccupied with men, and the men with women. Owing to this excessive preoccupation with each other, passion was aroused, and their bodies burnt with lust. And later, because of this burning, they indulged in sexual activity. But those who saw them indulging through dust, ashes, or cow dung at them, crying, Die, you filthy beast! How can one being do such things to another? Just as today in some districts, when a daughter-in-law is let out, some people throw dirt at her, some ashes, and some cow dung, without realizing that they are repeating an ancient observance. What was, consistent, what was considered bad form in those days is now considered good form. And those beings who in those days indulged in sex and were not, were not allowed into a village or town for one or two months. Accordingly, those who indulged in an excessively long period in such immoral practices began to build themselves dwellings so as to indulge undercover. Now it occurred to one of those beings who was inclined to laziness well now, why should I be bothered to gather rice in the evening for supper and in the morning for breakfast? Why shouldn't I gather it all at once for both meals? And he did so. Then another one came to him and said, come on, let's go rice gathering. No need, my friend. I've gathered enough for both meals. And the other, following his example, gathered enough rice for two days at a time, saying that should be about enough. Then another being came and said to that second one, come on, let's go rice gathering. No need, my friend, I've gathered enough for two days. The same for four, then eight days. However, when those beings made a store of rice and lived on that, husk powder and husk began to envelop the grain. And where it was reached, it did not grow again. And the cut place showed and the rice grew in separate clusters. And then those beings came together grieving. Wicked ways had become widespread among us. At first we were mind-made, feeding on excitement. All events repeated down to the last development, each fresh change being said to be due to wicked and unwholesome ways. And the rice grows in separate clusters. So now let us divide up the rice into fields with boundaries. So they did so. And now I pass. <laughs> Then, then Vasetha, excuse me, one greedy natured being, while watching over his own plot, took another plot that was not given to him and enjoyed the fruits of it. So they seized hold of him and said, you've done a wicked thing, taking another's plot like that. Don't ever do such a thing again. I won't, he said. But he did the same thing a second and a third time. Again, he was seized and rebuked. And some hit him with their fists, some with stones, and some with sticks. And in this way, Vasetha, taking what was not given, and condemning, and lying, and punishment, took their origin. Then those beings came together, and grieved the arising of these evil, unwholesome things among them, taking what was not given, condemning, lying, and punishment. And they thought, suppose we were to appoint a certain being, who would show anger where anger was due, punish those who deserved it, and banish those who deserved banishment, and in return, we would grant him a share of the rice. 
So they went to the one among them who was the handsomest, the best looking, the most pleasant and capable, and asked him to do this for them in return for a share of the rice, and he agreed. The people's choice is the meaning of Maha Samata, which is the first regular title to be introduced. Ruler of the fields is the meaning of Katya, the second title. And he gladdens others with teachings is the meaning of Raja, the third title to be introduced. This then, Vasetha, is the origin of the class of Katyas in accordance with the ancient titles that were introduced for them. They originated among these very same beings, like ourselves, no different, and in accordance with teachings, not otherwise. Teachings are the best thing for people in this life and the next as well. Then some of these beings thought, evil things have appeared among beings, such as taking what is not given, condemning, lying, punishment, and banishment. We ought to put aside evil and unwholesome things. And they did so. They put aside evil and unwholesome things is the meaning of Brahman, which is the first regular title to be introduced for such people. They made leaf huts in forest places and meditated in them. With the smoking fire gone out, with pestle cast aside, gathering alms food for their evening and morning meals, they went away to a village, town, or royal city to seek their food, and then they returned to their leaf huts to meditate. People saw this and noted how they meditated. They meditate is the meaning of jayaka, which is the second regular title to be introduced. However, some of these beings, not being able to meditate in leaf huts, settled around towns and villages and compiled books. People saw them doing this and not meditating. Now these do not meditate is the meaning of ajayaka, which is the third regular title to be introduced. At that time, it was regarded as a low designation, but now it is the higher. This then, Vaseta, is the origin of the class of Brahmins in accordance with the ancient titles that were introduced for them. Their origin was from among these very same beings, like themselves, no different, and in accordance with teachings, not otherwise. Teachings are the best thing for people in this life and the next as well. And then, Vaseta, some of those beings, having paired off, adopted various trades, and this various is the meaning of Vesa, which came to be the regular title for such people. This then is the origin of the class of Vesas in accordance with the ancient titles that were introduced for them. Their origin was from among these very same beings. And then Vaseta, those beings that remained went in for hunting. They are base who live by the chase. And that is the meaning of Suda, which came to be the regular title for such people. This, then, is the origin of the class of Sudas in accordance with the ancient titles that were introduced for them. <clears throat> Their origin was from among these very same beings. And then Vasetha. It came about that some Katya, dissatisfied with his own teachings, went forth from the household life into homelessness, thinking, I will become an ascetic. And a Brahmin did likewise, a Vesa did likewise, and so did a Suda. And from these four classes, the class of ascetics came into existence. Their origin was from among these very same beings like themselves, no different, and in accordance with the teachings, not otherwise. Teachings are the best thing for people in this life and the next as well. And then Vasetha, 
Akatya, who has led a bad life in body, speech, and thought, and who has wrong view, will, in consequence of such wrong views and deeds, at the breaking up of the body after death, be reborn in a state of loss, an ill fate, the downfall, the hell state. So too will a Brahmin, a Vesa, or a Suda. Likewise, Akatya, who has led a good life in body, speech, and thought, and who has right view, will, in consequence of such right view and deeds, at the breaking up of the body after death, be reborn in a good destiny, in a heaven state. So too will a Brahmin, a Vesa, or a Suda. An Akatya, who has performed deeds of both kinds in body, spe speech, and thought, and whose view is mixed, will, in consequence of such mixed views and deeds, at the breaking up of the body after death, experience both pleasure and pain, so too will a Brahman, a Vesa, or a Suda. An Akatya, who has restrained in body, speech, and thought, and who has developed the seven factors of enlightenment, will attain to final Nibbana, final enlightenment, in this very life. So too will a Brahman, a Vesa, or a Suda. And then Vasudha, whoever the, of these four castes as a monk becomes an Arahant who has destroyed the taints, fetters, done what had to be done, laid down the burden, attained to the highest goal, completely destroyed the fetter of existence, and become liberated by the highest wisdom. He is declared to be chief among them in accordance with teachings and not otherwise. Teachings are the best thing for people in this life and the next as well. Kati is best among those who value plan. He with knowledge and conduct is the best of gods and men. All right. Thank you, Rick and Miranda. This is a very long teaching where the Buddha is describing his creation story, essentially, how kind of the world came to be. I don't really have anything to really teach on this because the Buddha is explaining it from his perspective. The one thing that I share in the description and what I share for each chapter is I describe what is final Nibbana or final enlightenment. If you guys have questions on that or anything else, I'll take those. But I really don't have anything to teach here because the Buddha is just explaining his thoughts on the creation of the world and different groups of people. Um, yes, sir. You've spoken before about numerous animal species becoming extinct or endangered. So the number of animals on earth is becoming lower while we're seeing the human population rising very rapidly. Would this be a sign that we are in a, one of these times where the, this world is expanding? Or is this because of those beings in the animal realm, multiple beings, working through enough unwholesome karma that now they're being reborn in the human realm, sir? Both of those things can be true at the same time where, you know, there's an expansion of a certain realm and that is occurring because beings in other realms are extinguishing karma and being reborn. So those two things can happen at the same time. I'm not sure if what he's talking about here in terms of expansion and contraction are the realms themselves or the physical expansion and contraction of the actual world itself. I'm not 100% sure on that. And I don't think it really matters for our purposes too much, even though I'm pleased that you asked the question, Miranda. But I'm just kind of sharing that I wouldn't spend too much time getting wrapped around this understanding of what the Buddha is sharing about what he's sharing as a creation story, because now we're in this existence. We know the cycle of 
rebirth exists. And our goal is to extinguish the pollutions of mind that are keeping being keeping ourselves stuck in this cycle of rebirth. And by extinguishing those pollutions, then we can escape the cycle of rebirth. But ultimately, whenever there's a teacher teaching something like a tradition like this, the question becomes, you know, how did the world get started? And this is the Buddha's description of his creation story and how he's describing that occurs. But the Buddha himself talks in other parts of his teachings where he says the time of when things started is undiscoverable. The beginning of the cycle of rebirth is undiscoverable, even though here he describes how it happened. He doesn't describe when it actually occurs. So I don't know this time of contraction and expansion. Of course, it sounds like this time of contraction is already over. And now this time of expansion, it sounds like he's describing kind of the world expanding and essentially becoming the world that we know of it today. But yes, you know, the depletion of unwholesome gamma in the animal realm and extinguishing of that and beings that once existed in the animal realm no longer existing today being extinct is leading to the expansion of the human realm, which now there's an opportunity for beings to attain enlightenment in this human realm. And you'll see, I think it's in our readings this week, where the Buddha mentions Maitreya Buddha in the arising of this new Buddha. And this is what is actually essentially occurring now so that more and more and more beings have the opportunity to learn with Maitreya Buddha and be able to now escape the whole cycle of rebirth. Thank you, sir. And it seems like in this discourse, the first craving that arose in these beings um, was through contact through the tongue. But in order to exist at all before the time frame of this discourse, would there have had to have been some other craving, even just a craving for existence itself? Is this correct? I guess the mind is trying to figure out where these beings that ended up in the world came from, it says they're existing um, in a heavenly realm, but why are they existing there? It, it probably doesn't matter for the purposes of attaining enlightenment, though, sir. Yeah, I don't have a way to independently confirm or you know disprove what the Buddha is sharing here. I just take this as, okay, this is the Buddha's creation story, and I just leave it at that because I don't have a way to independently verify it, which all the other core teachings on the path to enlightenment, we can learn, reflect, and practice and independently verify them. But we don't have a way to independently verify this. But one thing that you hit on, which you're recognizing, is pretty much everything for the Buddha comes back to craving, desire, attachment in one way or another. So it's not a surprise that his creation story comes to craving, right? That's kind of what kind of sets all these things in motion, the way that the Buddha explains it. So I just look at it and understand it like, okay, this is the Buddha's creation story. He's basing everything in the creation of what we experience is on craving, desire, attachment, which makes perfect sense for what the Buddha teaches is kind of everything comes back to that in one way or another. Yes. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Uh, does not appear we have any other questions this time, sir. All right, so we'll move on to the next one. I have some very long chapters this week. Uh, yes, sir. Let's go to Jan to read chapter 58, please. Thank you, Miranda. 
causes of a decrease in people's lifespan. The king established guard and protection, but he did not give property to the needy, and as a result, poverty became widespread. Thus, from the not giving of pro property to the needy, poverty became widespread. From the growth of poverty, the taking of what was not given increased. From the increase of theft, the use of weapons increased. From the increased use of weapons, the taking of life increased. And from the increase in the taking of life, people's lifespan decreased, their beauty decreased. And as a result of this decrease of lifespan and beauty, the children of those whose lifespan had been 80,000 years lived for only 40,000 years. Thus, from the not giving of property to the needy, the taking of life increased, and the taking of life from the taking of life, lying increased. From the increase in lying, people's lifespan decreased, their beauty decreased, and as a result, children of those whose lifespan had been 40,000 years lived for only 20,000 years. Thus, from the not giving of property to the needy, the speaking evil of others increased, and in consequence, people's lifespan decreased, their beauty decreased, and as a result, the children of those whose lifespan had been 20,000 years lived only for 10,000 years. Thus, from the not giving of property to the needy, sexual misconduct increased, and in consequence, people's lifespan decreased, their beauty decreased, and as a result, the children of those whose lifespan had been 10,000 years lived for only 5,000 years. And among the generations whose lifespan was 5,000 years, two things increased, harsh speech and idle chatter, in consequence of which people's lifespan decreased, their beauty decreased, and as a result, the children of those whose lifespan had been 5,000 years lived some for two and a half thousand years and some for only 2,000 years. And among the generation whose lifespan was two and a half thousand years, craving and anger increased. And in consequence, people's lifespan decreased, their beauty decreased. And as a result, the children of those whose lifespan had been two and a half thousand years lived for only a thousand years. Among the generation whose lifespan was a thousand years, false opinions increased. And as a result, the children of those whose lifespan had been a thousand years lived for only 500 years. And among the generation whose lifespan was 500 years, three things increased. Incest, excessive greed, and unwholesome practices increased. And as a result, the children of those whose lifespan had been 500 years lived, some for 250 years, some for only 200 years. And among those whose lifespan was 250 years, these things increased lack of respect for mother and father, for ascetics and Brahmins, and for the head of the community. Thus, from the not giving of property to the needy, lack of respect for mother and father, for ascetics and Brahmins, and for the head of the community increased. And in consequence, people's lifespan and beauty decreased. And the children of those whose lifespan had been two and a half centuries lived for only a hundred years. Monks, time will come when the children of these people will have a lifespan of 10 years. And with them, girls will be marriageable at five years old. And with them, these flavors will disappear. Ghee, butter, sesame oil, molasses, and salt. Among them, 
Kudrasar grain will be the chief food, just as rice and curry are today. And with them, the 10 courses of moral conduct will completely disappear, and the 10 courses of evil will prevail exceedingly. For those of a 10-year lifespan, there will be no word for moral. So how can be there? How can there be anyone who acts in a moral way? These people who have no respect for mother or father, for ascetics and Brahmins, for the head of the community, will be the ones who enjoy honor and prestige. Just as it is now with people who show respect for mother and father, for ascetics and Brahmins, for the head of the community, who are praised and honored, so it will be with those who do the opposite. Among those of a 10-year lifespan, no account will be taken of mother or aunt, of mother's sister-in-law, of teacher's wife, or of one's father's wives, and so on. All will be promiscuous in the world, like sheep, fowl, and pigs, dogs, and jackals. Among them, fierce hostility will prevail one for another, fierce hatred, fierce anger, and thoughts of killing, mother against child, and child against mother, father against child, child against father, brother against brother, brother against sister, just as the hunter feels hatred for the beast he stalks. And those of a 10-year lifespan, and for those of a 10-year lifespan, there will come to be a sword interval of seven days, during which they will mistake one another for wild beasts. Sharp swords will appear in their hands and thinking, there is a wild beast. They will take each other's lives with those swords. But there will be some beings who do not want to take part in this killing. They went into hiding for seven days. Then at the end of the seven days, they will emerge from their hiding places and rejoice together as one community, saying, wholesome beings, I see that you are alive. So let us now do good. And now having undertaken such wholesome things, they will increase in lifespan gradually from 10 years back to 80 years, 80,000 years again. And in that time, an Arahant, fully enlightened Buddha named Maitreya will arise in the world. All right. Thank you, Jan. So here, if you read this, it sounds like the Buddha is describing exactly what we're experiencing today. And that's what he's ultimately getting to, is that during his lifetime, he described that his teachings would go through five 500-year cycles. And during this first 500 years, people would be really strong in their union and a lot of people would get to enlightenment essentially. Then the second 500 year cycle, we talked about how people would be really good with meditation and meditating. The third 500 years, there would be a lot of scholars and scholarly work around his teachings. In the fourth 500 years, there would be a lot of generosity and giving and sharing to promote his teachings. And then in the fifth 500 years, essentially people would be arguing and not really sure what he actually taught and people would be disagreeing on what he actually taught and what the true teachings are. And then he describes that there's this new Buddha Maitreya that will arise and restore his teachings back into the world. And he describes this occurring 2,500 years after his death, which most people date his death to 483 BCE, which makes 2017 the date of the arising of this new Buddha, Maitreya. And when he's describing here, he's describing the various unwholesome things that we experience as a way of decreasing our lifespan. What he's talking about here when he's talking about decreasing lifespan, and he talks about it gets down to 10 years, and then it expands out to 80,000 years, 
he's not talking about our individual life, about how long somebody lives. What he's actually talking about is the the future of humanity. And if you think about the period of time that we're in right now, which is the period of time that the Gautama Buddha said that Maitreya Buddha would arise, is that we now have experienced this shrinking of expectation of humanity to continue based on all the unwholesome decisions that we've made around environment. There's people that predict that we only have a certain amount of time before we kind of pass the no going back zone where humanity is not going to be able to continue based on the unwholesome decisions that we've made. And what the Buddha is saying here is that there's going to be this fully perfectly enlightened Buddha who will arise, share his teachings, and then gradually over time as those teachings permeate in the world, then our life expectancy for all of humanity will expand back out to 80,000 years, meaning there'll be 80,000 more years before the end of humanity. And with this new Buddha predicted to arise in 2017, when they get to enlightenment, they will turn the Dhamma wheel. The Dhamma wheel is kind of a figurative thing that is on the head of an actual Buddha. So where the the top of the scalp and the back of the skull meet together, there's a flat spot and a person who's a Buddha will turn the Dhamma wheel in a counterclockwise position. And that is a sign of that Buddha awakening, but also it's a sign of all of humanity or civilization stepping forward. So once a new Buddha awakens and they're gradually able to share the teachings and help them progress in the world and be learned in the world and practice in the world, we'll see this expansion of time where humanity's ability to sustain itself will increase up to 80,000 years. That's the wholesome results of a Buddha's existence. But what he starts out with is he starts out with talking about how the degrading of society and the degrading of the life expectancy of all of humanity essentially happens by somebody not being generous and not having generosity. He talks about essentially someone who's not willing to to give. And just like all of these unwholesome things can happen from an unwholesome decision, we can also have wholesome things happen from wholesome decisions. Like I was describing to Jan about when we practice generosity, then more and more others tend to also practice generosity as well. But the way that this gets started and this degrading of humanity gets started with an unwholesome decision of not sharing and not giving. And then one decision after another after another, this cascading effect of cause and effect leads to the degrading of humanity where there's fighting and murders and killing and sexual misconduct and other things that shrinks our ability to for humanity to exist down to 10 years. And then as we improve our conduct and we make wiser decisions, the Buddha is saying, okay, this will expand to 80,000 years. So from the time that this new Buddha awakens and turns the Dhamma wheel, from that point forward, there should be another 80,000 years of humanity remaining. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Um, yes, sir. First to comment, the beginning of this um, reads a lot to me, almost like a uh, dependent origination with this causing that. Mm-hmm. Um, because of not giving property to the needy, poverty becoming widespread. Is this, is this one of the reasons why generosity is so important to our practice? 
none of us are able to supply an entire population or country or even support most of us, I would think, a whole family or a person ourselves. But with more and more people practicing generosity in order to share these teachings, is that where that becomes more important in our practice to support the teachings and that them being shared, sir? Yeah, what you realize is that everything comes down to this cause and effect, this natural law of gamma, of cause and effect or action and result. And when we make wholesome decisions, wholesome results happen for us. And when we practice generosity, we should be thinking about the elimination of craving, desire, attachment, training the mind to let go, and eliminating selfishness. That's the real thing that's occurring for our practice. But what you'll see is that when you're practicing wholesome moral conduct and you're making wise decisions, the people around you will tend to do similar things. Uh, The people that collect around you, there'll be certain people that will see the wholesomeness that you're involved in and they won't want any part of it and they'll leave from being around you. But the people who are around you, they will kind of look at your conduct and kind of uh, replicate that. So Yes, as you focus on your own practice to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, and selfishness by practicing generosity, then you'll see that this will spread in the world. Um, not that you have to take on the responsibility to go out and you know, spread these things, but it will just naturally occur. You'll see other parts of the Buddhist teachings where he talks about this, not only in relationship to generosity, but in relationship to other aspects of our practice as well. And he even talks about how people who are kind of running populations of people should make accommodations for otter hunts and people in the four stages of enlightenment to reside safely in their community. Because if you have a bunch of otter hunts or enlightened people or even other stages of enlightenment in your community, they're going to function in a way that is very wholesome. And this is going to gradually spread within a community. And then likewise, if you have unwholesomeness going on, that's going to spread. So the Buddha talks in other parts of his teachings about you know, people would be wise to kind of create safe environments for people to come into their community who are awakened or one in one of the four stages of enlightenment, because this is going to be very good as those people interact at stores and at different events and community events, that as they're interacting and they're practicing right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, this is all going to spread within a community. Of course, for the Buddhist teachings to really be understood and take hold in the community, there needs to be active learning in order for people to learn and gain the wisdom and then practice those teachings. But even just having people who are practicing generosity, as you're explaining, for example, this will gradually spread in a community as more people choose to practice in that way. And people will be like, oh, I felt really nice when Jan let me in in traffic. I think I'll do that in the future, too. And then this just kind of spreads more and more. But it takes a long time for these things to happen. So this is why you can come to a society like Thailand and the population of people here and you can just see so much peacefulness and so much harmony, so much care, so much kindness, so much politeness, so much respect in their community. And this has occurred and evolved over many generations of people doing this and practicing these teachings in this way. They've been here for 800 to 1200 years, but in a place in other parts of the world where these teachings aren't really well known and well practiced, 
we see, you know, massive amounts of murder and killing and fights and aggression and anger and hostility and sexual misconduct and all these things that the Buddha is describing here. But as people like you end up deciding to learn and practice these, you'll see that these little bubbles will be created around the world where people will just choose to function in more wholesome ways. Again, we shouldn't take the responsibility of that occurring, but what the Buddha is explaining here as part of what you can understand is that that just will occur as a part of the natural laws of existence and the natural law of gamma is that as you practice in certain ways, that's what people are going to practice around you. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Uh, it does not appear we have any other questions at this time, sir. All right, so we'll go to chapter 59. Yes, sir. Let's go to Rick to read chapter 59, please, sir. Okay. Become unrighteous. Monks, when kings are unrighteous, the royal subordinates or vassals become unrighteous. When the royal subordinates or vassals are unrighteous, Brahmins and householders become unrighteous. When Brahmins and householders are unrighteous, the people of the towns and countryside become unrighteous. When the people of the towns and countryside are unrighteous, the sun and moon proceed off course. When the sun and moon proceed off course, the constellations and the stars proceed off course. When the constellations and the stars proceed off course, day and night proceed off course. When day and night proceed off course, the months and weeks proceed off course. When the months and weeks proceed off course, the season and years proceed off course. When the seasons and years proceed off course, the winds blow off course and at random. When the winds blow off course and at random, the deities become upset. When the deities are upset, sufficient rain does not fall. When sufficient rain does not fall, the crops ripen irregularly. When people eat crops that ripen irregularly, they become short-lived, ugly, weak, and sickly. Then the Tathagata explained in the above in detail with the opposite causes, with the opposite results. Monks, when kings are righteous, the royal subordinates or vassals become righteous. When, su then, when sufficient rain falls, the crops open in ripe season. They ripen in season. When people eat crops that ripen in season, they become long-lived, beautiful, strong, and healthy. All right. Thank you, Rick. So here, as the Buddha explains things in the common way that Miranda was pointing to, is it's this cause and effect, this action and result, everything that we experience as a result of our decisions. So right now we might say that, yes, this is what's actually occurring. We have a lot of bodily sickness in our human population. And the Buddha is explaining that if our leaders, here he's talking about kings, right? But if we talk, look at our leaders, our community leaders, our politicians are unrighteous, then the people around them are going to also be unrighteous. And when they're unrighteous, then we see that Brahmin householders become unrighteous and so forth and so on. So it's this cascading effect down to the unwholesome, kind of chasing each other down to the pits of unwholesomeness. But then also, if we function in wholesome ways, then we can all choose and aspire to improve our conduct to function in wholesome ways. That's what he's 
essentially talking about here is this cause and effect relationship and showing you how this occurs. And you can see this as the truth if you look at the world around you and not think about kings and subordinates, but think about leaders and a community and how these things occur. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Um, yes, sir. Rick has his hand raised. Let's go to him for his question. Yes, thank you, Teacher David, and thank you, everybody. I was just wondering, because um, I wasn't quite sure I understood this, but the, the first part talks about the various people of the Earth becoming unrighteous, and then it switches to the sun and the moon and the constellation, the stars, day and night, and, and, and things like that. And I was just wondering how that does that relate to things that are happening today, such as climate change or anything? I wasn't sure what the implications were of this text. Yeah, that that's exactly correct, is that if you look at the planetary movements and the stars and things, all of these things are being modified. And the Buddha is saying that this is because of our conduct and the way that we function, that these things are happening. Because if you look at climate change, this is a direct result of decisions that we're making. When we lack wisdom, we make unwise decisions. And then based on those craving, anger, and ignorance or unknowing of true reality, there are certain results in the world. We oftentimes see things like planets and stars as you know not changing and being fixed and that our decisions here on Earth wouldn't affect other things. But what we're learning through science is that that's not the case, that our decisions here on Earth are absolutely affecting our environment. And when we affect that environment, then the food that we eat isn't as healthy, and then we experience more bodily sickness. So it's this continuous decisions that are unwise lead to unwholesome results. Decisions that are wise lead to wholesome results. And by gaining wisdom, we can then make wise choices that lead to more wholesome results. And that's where the Buddha is saying that, okay, if we eat food that is healthy based on decisions that we make, then we can have a longer life, be more beautiful, strong, and healthy. Thank you, Teacher David. You're welcome. Uh, Sir Donnie has his hand raised. Let's go to him for his question, please. Thank you, Miranda. Uh, did you just wish to check, Amiyanu, um, what the Buddha meant by the deities become a set? I mean, who is he referring to the deities? Yeah, that caught my attention when I saw this the first time, too, is that the Buddha, at least in the text that we have, mentions these deities a few times. I've seen him mention them, but he never teaches to worship these deities, right? We might even think of them as um, potentially the heavenly beings or, you know, he talks about Saka, the ruler of heavenly beings and things like this. I'm not sure if that's what he's referring to. There's definitely no worship of these deities, um, but he's attributing the change of rainfall and weather patterns to these to these uh, beings. I don't have any further information other than what you see here of what those deities are and how this occurs, um, but it might just be what we might think of as heavenly beings or even God could be, you know, typically when he's referring to God, he's using Brahma, as referring to God, but uh, I really don't know, Donnie, what he's referring to here because there's no point in his teachings where he details out, at least that I've seen, about any deities, and there's certainly no worship of these deities in any way. Thank you, teacher. You're welcome. 
It does not appear there are any other questions at this time, sir. All right, so the last chapter for today, chapter 60. Yes. Sorry, sir. Yes, uh, let's go to Donnie to read chapter 60, please. Thank you, Marinda. Reasons for depopulation. Master Gautama, I have heard older Brahmins who are aged, burdened with years, teachers of teachers saying, in the past, this world was so thickly populated, one would think there was no space between people. The villages, town, and capital cities were so close that roosters could fly between them. Why is it, Master Gautama, that at present the number of people has, has declined, the population is seen, and villages, towns, cities, and districts have vanished? At present, Brahmin, people are excited by unwholesome lust, and overcome by unrighteous greed, affected by hum, wrong, harmful teachings. As a result, they take up weapons and slay one another, hence many people die. This is a reason why at present the number of people has declined, the population is seen, and villages, towns, cities, and districts have vanished. Again, at present, people are excited by unwholesome lust, overcome by unrighteous greed, affected by wrong, harmful teachings. But when this happens, sufficient rain does not fall. As a result, there's a famine, scarcity of grain, crops become spoiled and turn to straw, as many people die. There is another reason why at present the number of people has declined. The population is seen and villages, towns, cities and districts have vanished. Again, at present, people are excited by unwholesome lust and overcome by unrighteous greed, affected by wrong, harmful teachings. When this happens, the Yakahas, indigenous ethnic group from the Indian subcontinent, release wild spirits. Hence, many people die. This is yet another reason why at present the number of people has declined, the population is seen, and villages, towns, cities, and districts have vanished. All right. Thank you, Donnie. So here the Buddha is just once again connecting our decisions to what happens in the world, cause and effect, action, result, the natural law of gamma. His teachings are all exposing this so that the more that you understand how your decisions are affecting you on an individual basis and how our decisions affect things around us, then we can be motivated to improve our decision making. So I don't have any real teaching on this other than everything else that we've learned about the Eightfold Path and everything else to improve our decision making by improving our wisdom and by making wise decisions, we experience wholesome outcomes. And the Buddha is just explaining why these certain things occur. Any questions on this particular chapter? Uh, it does not appear there are any questions at this time, sir. All right. Well, thank you all for reading. You know, thank you, Miranda, Rick, and others who've been moderating. I really appreciate your help and your support as we share these teachings to help people learn the teachings of the Buddha. And we can see the truth for ourselves that as we learn and practice, that our life becomes better, the condition of our mind becomes better, that we gain this wisdom. It just takes gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress. It takes time and work but that is well worth it as we see the improvement to the condition of the mind in our life. Next week, we're gonna be in chapters 61 through 70, so feel free to read those prior to class if you like, and you can download the book if you don't have access to this by going to buddhadailywisdom.com. Tomorrow in the group learning program, we're gonna be in chapter 14, which is titled Cultivating Healthy Mental States, 
loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. These are four healthy mental states that are needed in order to get to enlightenment. And what I'm going to be sharing with you is what those four healthy mental states are, what they actually remedy in terms of how they transform the mind away from various pollutions, and I'm going to teach you how to cultivate each individual one of them. Essentially, what some people describe the Buddha as is like a doctor where he's prescribing certain medicines that you have this certain problem of jealousy. Well, what's the antidote to that? Or you have this problem of anger. How do you fix that? Or you have this problem of worry and anxiety. Well, what's the prescription of how to fix that? These four healthy mental states are part of that prescription that the Buddha provides as this medical doctor, for example, as a way to remedy and transform the mind away from these unwholesome mental states that you might experience or these unwholesome feelings and helping you to cultivate these healthy mental states will ensure that you no longer experience those unwholesome feelings that may be arising currently. So you're welcome to join for tomorrow's class in the group learning program. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be doing a loving kindness meditation session together. So you're welcome to join for that as well. So I'll see you either next Saturday, perhaps Sunday or Wednesday, maybe all of these days. In the meantime, have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. We'll see you in a future class. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.